Luke chapter 17, verse 11, through chapter 18, verse 8, verses 11 through 13. And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, though the Samaritans were bitter enemies to the Jews and had been guilty of great incivility towards our Savior, yet our Savior in his journey to Jerusalem balks them not, but bestows the favor of a miracle upon them. Civil courtesy and respect may and ought to be paid to those that are the professed enemies of us and our holy religion. Observe, too, though the leper, by the law of God, was to be separated from all other society, God thereby signifying to his people that the society of those that are spiritually contagious ought to be avoided. Yet the law of God did not restrain them from conversing with one another. Accordingly, these ten lepers get together and are company for themselves. Fellowship is that we all naturally affect, though even in leprosy, lepers will flock together. Where shall we find one spiritual leper alone? Drunkards and profane persons will be sure to consort with one another. Why should not God's children delight in a holy communion when the wicked join hand in hand? Observe 3. Though Jews and Samaritans could not abide one another, yet here in leprosy they accord. Here was one Samaritan leper with the Jewish. Common sufferings had made them friends whom religion had disjoined. Oh, what virtue is there in affliction to unite the most alienated and estranged hearts? Observe 4. These lepers apply themselves to Christ, the great physician. They cry out unto him for mercy, with respect to their afflictions. They jointly cry. They all lifted up their voices with fervent importunity, teaching us our duty to join our spiritual forces together and to set upon God by troops. O holy and happy violence that is thus offered to heaven, how can we want blessings when so many cords draw them down upon our heads? Verse 14. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the preventing grace and mercy of Christ. Their disease is cured ere it can be complained of. Go, show yourselves unto the priests, says Christ. And in their going they were cleansed. They were healed before they could come at the priests. That as the power that healed them was holy Christ's, so might the praise be also. Observe, too, a twofold reason why Christ commanded them to go to the priests. One, in compliance with the ceremonial law, which required the leper to be brought to them, to judge whether healed or not, and if so, to receive the offering prescribed in token of thankfulness. Two, the trial of their obedience. Had they stood upon terms with Christ and said, Alas, to what purpose is it we show ourselves to the priests? What good can their eyes do us? We should be glad to see ourselves cured, but why should we go to them to see ourselves loathed? Had they thus expostulated, they had not been healed. What command soever we receive from Christ, we must rather consider the authority of the commander than the weight of the thing commanded. For God delights to try our obedience by small precepts. Happy for these lepers that, in obedience to Christ, they went to the priests, for as they went, they were healed. Verses 15 and 16. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. 
and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, all were healed, but only one was thankful. The cure is wrought upon the bodies of all. Thankfulness is found but in the heart of one. The will makes the difference in men, but he makes the difference in wills, who at first made the will. All these lepers were cured. All saw themselves cured. Their sense was alike. Their hearts were not alike. Observe, too, the person that made his return of thankfulness to Christ. He was a Samaritan. That is, none of the Jewish nation, but one that was a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel. Neither place nor parentage can block up the way or stop the current of God's free mercy, which reaches the unworthy and the ill-deserving. Observe three, how singly he returns his thanks. He gets away from his fellows to make his acknowledgement. There are cases wherein singularity is not only lawful, but laudable. Instead of subjecting ourselves to others' example, it's sometimes our duty to resolve to set an example to others. For it is much better to go the right way alone than to err with company. Observe 4. How speedily he returns his thanks. No sooner doth he see his cure, but he hastes to acknowledge it. A noble pattern of thankfulness. What speed of retribution is here? Late payments of our thankfulness savor of ingratitude. It were happy for us Christians did we learn our duty of this Samaritan. Verses 17 through 19. And Jesus, answering, said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. Burkett notes, In the face of these ten lepers we may, as in a glass, behold the face and complexion of all mankind. How few there are, O Lord, scarce more than one in ten, who after signal mercies return suitable thanks. Men howl to God upon their beds, but run away from God as soon as they are raised up by him. Observe farther what an exact account Christ keeps of his own dispensed favors. Were there not ten cleansed? He forgets our sins, but records his own mercies. It is one of his glorious titles, a God forgiving and forgetting iniquity, but his mercies are over all his work and deserve everlasting remembrance. God keeps a register of all his mercies towards us. Oh, shall we not record the favors received from him, at once declare his bounty towards us, and our thankfulness towards him? Observe lastly, the thankful leopard was a Samaritan, but the nine that were unthankful were Israelites. Learn hence that the more we are bound to God, the more shameful is our ingratitude towards him. Where God may justly expect the greatest returns of praise and service, he sometimes receives the least. God has more rent and better paid him from a smoky cottage than he has from some stately palaces. Verses 20 and 21. And when he was demanded of the Pharisee when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Burkett notes, The generality of the Jews, and particularly the Pharisees, expected that the promised Messiah should be a temporal prince and deliver them from the Roman yoke under which they groaned. Accordingly, the Pharisees here demanded of our Savior when the kingdom of God, of which he had so often spoken, should come. Christ answers them that his kingdom cometh not with observation, that is, with pomp and splendor 
which men may observe and gaze upon. But he tells them the kingdom of God was now among them by the ministry of John the Baptist and himself, and was already set up in the hearts of his people by the secret operations of his Holy Spirit. Learn hence that the false notion which the Jews had of the Messiah and his kingdom, that he himself was to be a temporal prince and his kingdom a secular kingdom, to be set up with a great deal of noise, pomp, and splendor, did hinder the generality of them from believing in him. Secondly, that the kingdom which Christ designed to set up in the world was altogether spiritual, not obvious to human senses, but managed in the hearts of his people by the scepter of his spirit. My kingdom cometh not with observation, but is within you. Verses 22 through 25. And he said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here, or see there, go not after them, nor follow them. For as lightning that lighteneth out of one part of under heaven, shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things, and be rejected of this generation. Burkett notes, In the remaining part of this chapter, our Savior acquaints his disciples with what days of tribulation and distress were coming on the Jewish nation in general, and on Jerusalem in particular. Days of suffering, as if our Savior had said, are not far off, when you wish for my bodily presence again among you, to support and comfort you, and when many seducers will rise up, pretending to be deliverers, but go not ye after them. For after this generation have rejected and crucified me, my coming, says Christ, to execute vengeance upon my enemies and murderers at Jerusalem by the Roman soldiers, will be sudden, like the lightning that shines in an instant from one part of the heavens to the other. From this coming of Christ to judge Jerusalem, which was an emblem of the final judgment, we may gather this instruction, that the coming and appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to the judging of the wicked and penitent sinners will be a very certain, sudden, and unexpected appearance. Verses 26 through 30. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Burkett notes, In these verses our Savior declares that Jerusalem's destruction and the world's final desolation at the great day would be like the destruction of the old world in the days of Noah, and like the destruction of Sodom in the days of Lot, and that both in regard of unexpectedness and in regard of sensuality and security, as they before the flood were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, that is, wholly given up to sensuality and debauchery, and did not know, that is, did not consider the flood's coming, till it swept them away. Thus was it before the destruction of Jerusalem, and will it be before the end of the world. Hence we learn that as the old world perished by infidelity, security, and sensuality, so will the same sins be prevailing before the destruction of this present world. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. 
verses 31 and 32. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop, and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Briquette notes, Here our Savior advises them that when they shall see the judgments of God breaking out upon Jerusalem, that they make all possible speed to get out of it, as Lot and his family did out of Sodom, and to take heed of imitating Lot's wife, who, looking back, became a pillar of salt. Genesis 19. Where observe, one, her offense. She looked back. Two, the punishment of her offense. She became a pillar of salt. Her offense in looking behind her was manifest disobedience to the divine command, which said, Look not behind thee, and proceeded either from carelessness, or from covetousness, or from curiosity, or for compassion for those she left behind, and was undoubtedly the effect of great infidelity, she not believing the truth of what the angel had declared, as touching the certainty and suddenness of Sodom's destruction. The punishment of her offense was exemplary. She became a pillar of salt, that is, a perpetual monument of divine severity for her infidelity and disobedience. Where note 1, the suddenness of her punishment. The justice of God surprises her in the very act of sin, with a present revenge. 2, the seeming disproportion betwixt the punishment and the offense. Her offense was a forbidden look, from whence carnal reason may plead, was it not sufficient for her to lose her eyes, but must she lose her life? But the easiness and reasonableness of the command aggravated her disobedience, and though her punishment may seem severe, it was not unjust. Now, says our Savior, remember Lot's wife. That is, let her caution all of you against unbelief, disobedience, worldly-mindedness, contempt of God's threatenings, and lingering after the forbidden society of lewd and wicked persons. Verses 33 through 36. Whoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed, the one shall be taken, and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Burkett notes, In this hour, when judgment has come upon Jerusalem, Christ declares that whoever shall take an unchristian course to preserve his life by denying him and his holy religion, he shall lose eternal life. But he that for Christ's sake shall lose his natural life, instead of a mortal, shall enjoy an immortal life in bliss and glory. Here we learn one that the love of temporal life is a great temptation to men to deny Christ and his holy religion in a day of trial. 2. That the surest way to attain eternal life is cheerfully to lay down our temporal life when the glory of Christ and the honor of religion requires it of us. Christ farther adds that in this terrible night of Jerusalem's calamity, when destruction comes upon her, the providence of God will remarkably distinguish between one person and another. True believers and constant professors shall be delivered, and none else. Such shall escape the dangers. Others shall fall by it. Verse 37. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Burkett notes, The disciples, hearing our Savior speak of such tremendous 
calamities, inquire where these judgments should fall. He answers them figuratively by a proverbial speech, that where the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together, signifying that Jerusalem and the obdurate nation of the Jews was the carcass which the Roman armies, whose ensign was the eagle, would quickly find out and feed upon, and that Judea in general, and Jerusalem in particular, would be the theater and stage of those tragical calamities. Learn, thence that the appointed messengers of God's wrath and the instruments of his vengeance will suddenly gather together, certainly find out and severely punish an impenitent people devoted to destruction. Where the carcass is, that is, the body of the Jewish nation, there will the eagles, that is, the Roman soldiers, be gathered together. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards she said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on earth? Burkett notes, There is no duty in Christianity, the practice of which our Savior presses upon us more frequently than this duty of prayer, to encourage his disciples and us in them. To fervency, importunity, and perseverance in this duty, he propounds here the parable of an unjust judge who was overcome by the importunate widow to do her justice contrary to his own inclination. From whence our Savior argues that if importunity will prevail with a sinful man to grant petitions offered to him, how much more prevalent will such importunity be with the infinitely good God to relieve the necessities of such as devoutly implore his help? And the force of the argument lies thus. The judge in the parable was an inferior and subordinate judge, was an unrighteous and unjust judge, was a merciless and hard-hearted judge. And yet, upon her importunity, he avenged her. How much more will the sovereign and supreme judge, the holy and righteous, the merciful and compassionate judge of all the earth, hear and help his praying people and be the just avengers of those that fear him? From the whole, note one, that prayer, or liberty of making our requests known to God, is an inestimable favor and privilege. He that considers the nature of God and the nature of man cannot question it. God is a being full of infinite fullness and perfection, a self-sufficient and all-sufficient good, and man an indigent, helpless, dependent creature, full of wants and obnoxious to dangers. Two, that prayer is not only an inestimable privilege, but an indispensable duty. So solicitous is God for our welfare and happiness that he makes our privilege and duty by the authority of his command, so that we are at once ungrateful to God and unjust to ourselves in the most exalted degree if we do not pray unto him and spread our wants before him. 3. That this duty of prayer is not an occasional, but a constant duty. Men ought always to pray, that is, one, 
at all seasonable times and fit opportunities. We are said to do a thing continually when we do it seasonably. Now the seasons for prayer are morning and evening, as the morning and evening sacrifice was constant among the Jews, and the fire was always upon the altar and never went out. So he that prays morning and evening may be said to be instant in prayer and to pray without ceasing. 3. Always to pray is an endeavor always to keep the heart in a praying frame and to be very frequent in offering up pious ejaculations and short metal prayers to God, as occasion shall offer. When in the field, in the shop, in the bed, when sleep departs, in the journey, when alone, this may be done advantageously, without loss of time, and acceptably, without danger of hypocrisy, which too often mingles itself with our more set prayers. Observe 4. We must not only pray constantly, but pray fervently, yea, importunately. If we would pray successfully, we must cry to God as the widow to the judge. Vehemency and importunity are both helps and ornaments to prayer. They both fortify and beautify our prayers. They pierce the heavens and offer a holy violence to God. Says to tell you, and God delights in such importunity. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? If by the Son of Man's coming we understand Christ's coming in judgment against Jerusalem, then the sense is this, that when he comes to take vengeance on the obstinate Jews and to destroy their city, he will find but little faith and patient waiting for the help of God in the land of Judea, and consequently little importuning him with incessant cries and supplications, as this poor woman did the unjust judge. 2. If by the Son of Man's coming we understand Christ's coming to judge the world at the last day, then the sense is, when he cometh, he will find but few faithful ones, comparatively speaking. He will find but few sincere and serious Christians, in whom the genuine effect and fruits are found. Learn that when Christ shall come to judgment, he will find comparatively very few whose hearts have not fainted, and very many who through the power that temptation has upon the frailty of human nature are fallen away. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on earth? Verily, but little faith and few faithful ones.